0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project Today we've got a great episode for you We are going to be hearing from a pioneering group that really does not fit into one genre The Chambers Brothers Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino,
1: and Ashley Allison.
0: All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to check out any of our other content that's not featured, head over to nam.org/library.
2: Time. Yes, it's time for the Chambers brothers. I am so super psyched that today's episode of the Music History Project is dedicated to the amazing talents of these guys uh, who put together some amazing music, not only inspiring so many musicians over the last 50 years or more, but also just changing the way people categorize Genres of music. These guys are undefined, and they're very proud of it. And uh, speaking of being proud, we have interviewed three of the Chambers brothers for the NAM oral history program. All three of which you will be hearing from in this podcast, along with a couple of surprises. Uh, two other people are going <laughs> to chime in about their career, and I'm happy to uh, to tell you about that a little bit later on. But you're listening to this because you want to hear from them. So let's get started right away with Lester Chambers. What was your first instrument you played?
3: Harmonica. Oh, it was? And my only instrument was harmonica. I did play the cowbell and the tambourine and the bells and gourds and stuff like that. But once I heard Sonny Terry on the radio, you know, on the Grand Ole Opera show, and Sonny and Brownie used to do the, theme song, which was the Fox Chase. And boy, Sonny would be ooh, He would tear that harmonica up, man. I said to the dad, you know, and I still wonder today how he pulled it off. But I told him, you know, like, in those times, I know like to have a nickel was a lot of money for a southerner in the south, you know. But my dad got me that harmonica, right? I don't know how, but he got me that harmonica and I played it. And uh, still play today, it's the only instrument I ever tried to play, you know. And I love it just as much now as I did the first time I tried. And uh, hopefully before the day is over we'll all play again.
2: Yeah. Well said, well yeah. said. That's neat. Yeah. <laughs>
3: so I kn- I know this time is special, so I'm going to move on and let Brother Billy or somebody else.
2: Well, that's awfully yeah. nice of you. Thank <laughs> you so much.
3: We tried. That was one of the things. We were family and we wanted to make sure that everybody knew we were family. And one of our main things were to make sure that we kept a family uh, feeling and environment around us, you know. This is way different now, you know, one's here and one's there, but we still love each other. We talk to each other very sporadically. Not a lot, but we keep in touch, you know. They're all in Los Angeles, I just... From the day I left Mississippi and landed in Los Angeles, I did not like it, I did not like it. So I rushed myself through school, graduated high school when I was like 16, maybe at 15 and a half and uh, waited till I was 16 to go to Metropolitan Trade Tech College to learn a uh, skill that was the college that just taught you what you were going to do. And from there, you know, I became independent. And one day I was sitting on that big old forklift I'm driving, you know, with a load of steel on it. And I said, and I'm singing, you know, and I got a bottle of gin. And I'm driving with one hand and (laughs) singing and taking a little hit of that gin. And when I looked up, the boss was standing there. The owner of the factory was standing there, you know. And he goes, is that what you do out here at night? You drink and drive? And I say, ain't nobody here but me. I can't hurt nobody. You know, if anything go wrong, well, nobody get hurt. That's why I wanted the job changed from day to night. And my singing that you heard me do, by the way, would you like a swallow of gin? (laughs) 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 And he says, he says, as a matter of fact, I would,
2: you know? <laughs>
3: So, So we drank that gin, a little half-paint, fin- and finished it, and I says, and, you, and he says, I didn't know you would realize you were a singer, I said, yeah, that's what I was born to do, mm. singing, and I cut the motor off on that tractor, and I said, and that's what I'm leaving here to do right now, and I never went back to that job never got my last payday. I just wanted I just wanted to sing you know and play that harmonica and it gave me all the freedom that I needed to do that and uh, I'm still doing that.
2: Okay that was one of my favorite stories in the entire oral history program. Lester talking about uh, having a little nip there while he's driving his uh, forklift. Um, Lester Chambers kicked off this episode of the Music History Project as we dedicate it to the Chambers brothers and their remarkable musical career and the incredible influence that they've had on several different genres of music and musicians over the last 50 plus years. You know, it was a wonderful opportunity uh, to interview Lester. And I just want to give a quick shout out to our friend Fat Dog, the owner of subway guitars in berkeley fat dog is a good friend of lester's and invited him to a fish fry Uh, he invited me and our camera person up there as well and we got the opportunity to interview him and uh, capture that story And it gave me a real taste for the fact that, you know what, I might be able to interview some of the other Chambers brothers. And in fact, uh, over the years we have, and I'm very happy that this podcast will include three of them. Um, We have uh, Joe coming up and and Willie, that was Lester, and uh, their brother George uh, really was kind of the inspiration of the group. Uh, He passed away before I had a chance to interview him. Um, But uh, those four guys, along with their drummer, Brian, really helped a lot of people understand a concept of undefinable music. (laughs) They can't be pigeonholed under one genre, and I think that's a fact all of them are very proud of. They started out in Mississippi as gospel singers, but as soon as they started performing in bars, People wanted to start calling it something else because after all, you don't perform church music in a bar. Well, they did and they redefined that genre. Then they started performing at uh, folk festivals and it wasn't quite folk music. So people wanted to call it something different. And of course, when they had their really uh, phenomenal big hit in 1968 called Time Has Come Today, Um, people wanted to call it a psychedelic rock band. So uh, I think they're very proud of the fact that you can't really call them any particular genre. And um, remarkable musicians, remarkable passion, and I hope that you guys can just sit back and relax and enjoy these stories. We're going to hear mostly from Willie and Joe coming up, but we have a couple of other special guests that are going to stop by to say a few words as well. So, Ashley, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what we're going to be hearing next.
1: Uh, yeah, and uh, definitely hard to define who the Chambers brothers are. They are everything and nothing all at the same time. <laughs> um, they have so many layers to them, and the great uh, great part about these interviews is that you really start to see all those layers, and they um, peel them back for us so we can kind of really understand how they're not defined by a certain genre uh, and so what we're gonna listen to right now is uh, Willie just talking about uh, growing up with music and kind of the beginning start of the Chambers brothers so here is Willie
4: Chambers
2: whose idea was it for you you, you and your brothers to start singing
4: well actually there was't uh, there was never a plan to be. Whatever we turned out to be, it was just something we enjoyed doing. We did it on a daily basis. There was singing while we worked in the fields. There was singing while we relaxed at home. There was singing in the car. There was <laughs> singing walking down the roads. It was uh, it was a constant thing that was going on all the time, and it was something that we was totally having fun with when we uh, in uh, nineteen somewhere in 1951, 52. Myself and two younger brothers and two cousins, we had a little group, a little vocal group. And we sang at my church and we were a gospel group. And my older brother George and and two other older brothers, they had a vocal group also. But when we were together at home, we were always singing together but then when we went out, my two old two older brothers was in a separate group, and the two three younger brothers in a separate group. And one day we were working in the fields, and we were singing, and we decided, why don't we have our own group among ourselves? You know, that way we won't be split up. We'll all be singing together. And we decided to do that, and then we spent a couple of weeks trying to come up with a name. we We couldn't come We couldn't come up with a name that everybody agreed on at the same time. There was always one or two people didn't like that name or something. So we decided we would just have to be the Chambers Brothers. <laughs> then we came to California, and we continued uh, doing our gospel singing. And, we were doing that in churches, uh, the church that we belong to, the church that I'm still a member of since 1954, wow. and still a member. And my brothers and I, we would we would doing that on, a, you know, every week, every Sunday, and sometimes on the week, Saturdays, Friday, Saturdays, any. And there was the troubadour coffee house, There was the Ash Grove, mm-hmm. and there was other other venues that was that uh, they had. They called it Hoot Nannies. That was open mic. They call it open mic today, but the, back in the days it was Hoot Nanny. And we used to go around to all the Hoot Nannies, and we would do a couple of gospel songs. Well, people people didn't have much experience, but. Hearing gospel music because that generally comes on the south side of town. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we were doing it in, uh, we were doing it at the one night at the Troubadour. We were, we would. we were, we signed up to do the hoot there. And we came out and we were doing gospel, it's high energy music. And there was a gentleman in the audience from London. Jack Good was his name and he had a, a dance show in London called Shindig. And after the uh, after our performance he, he he came up and introduced himself and he says I like you chaps I have a show in London I'm thinking about bringing it to America. And if I do I want you chaps on my I want you chaps on my show. So yeah uh, we exchanged numbers and everything we were excited all oh, we we were excited we told all our friends and everything we were gonna probably be doing this and do that but two or three years went by we never heard from this guy and then finally one day the phone rang and it was him he says I'm I'm here can you get down to NBC by four o'clock this afternoon <laughs> whoa okay and that was kind of like uh, the coffee house thing uh, and then there was the, the Ash Grove. Lightning Hopkins was in town. There was a blues singer named Long Gone Miles, Luke Long Gone Miles, that I played for. And he and Lightning Hopkins were good friends. And my brother Joe was conking hair, cooking hair, making colored people's hair easier to comb. (laughs) And Lightning, he had did, Long-Gone's hair, my brother Joe had did Long-Gone's hair and Lightning saw it, he wanted his hair done. So the owner of the Ash Grove uh, Club drove a, a, a Lightning down to our house to get my brother to get chemicals to do long- Lightning's hair. And the driver, the uh, the guy that was driving Lightning just happened to be the owner of the Ash Grove and conversation going on. and. I found out later years that Lightning Hopkins suggested to Ed Pearl that he should give us a job there. Mm. Didn't know that until recently, and we got invited to the Ash Grove to do an audition. We went there and we did straight up gospel, a lot of foot stomping, hand clapping, high energy music, and the place went crazy. The the crowd went wild and. At the end of our audition, Mr. Pearl says, I can't hire you guys, because people were all over the place. They they knocked the drinks off the table. They pinned the service to the wall. Nobody could move. It was like a madhouse. It's, the energy level was intense, so people weren't quite uh, familiar with that at that stage.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: And they got, they got really excited. So Mr. Pearl says, I can't hire you guys. I can't sell drinks when you're on stage. You look at my place, it's a mess. All the drinks are on the floor. And he says, I can't hire you guys. So I said to him, I says, well, don't they buy another drink at the end of the show? He says, well, yeah, they do. So he gave us another engage, uh, appointment to come back later do another interview, um, I mean, another audition we did. And he hired us for three weeks, it was our first contract gig, we pay, We made $300 a week. We did four shows a night. <laughs> but it was big time. We had a two-story bad house where we paid one hundred. I think $165 a month. And we had developed a little bit of a lifestyle now doing gospel in clubs and whatever, coffee houses. And the word got around and Man, it really caught on big gospel. Right today, we have Sunday morning gospel brunch at House of Blues. My brothers and I, we, we we feel responsible for all of that because we were the first people to ever take gospel to clubs or bars or whatever. But then there was Mahalia Jackson. You might be familiar with that name. She was considered the queen of gospel music and was respected as such. She were she was very much opposed to what we were doing. There was a talk there was a television show called uh Paul Coates Talk Show. I think it was one of the first talk shows in America. She went on that show, she slammed us really bad, said we were terrible people, and what we were doing were equivalent to burning the American flag to take gospel music and sing it in a place where alcoholic beverages are being served or sold. And it was just, she said it was blasphemia, and we should be ashamed of ourselves. And then she went to the Los Angeles Times, and she did a a, 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 a big spread in the Los Angeles Times about... Her views on what she thought about people that would do gospel music and bars and clubs and stuff like that. And it kind of scared the club owners. Blasphemia, back in the Bible days, you could get beheaded, you could get your head chopped off for (laughs) those charges, like blasphemia. And we couldn't get, we couldn't get work anymore. The club owners said, we want you guys, but uh, we can't hire you any longer as a gospel group. Because uh, then the union stepped in and, and told, uh, they, they they told all the owners, club owners, uh, you got to pay, all gospel groups can will, will contain uh, hardly ever less than five people to make a gospel group. And we had six people in our group at the time, and the union wanted the club owners to pay every member uh, union scale and above. and that was kind of like that that was kind of no no to the club owners. They didn't want to pay that kind of money. Mm. And we were out of work, but then the club owners would was calling us and they would say, can you guys do blues? Can you do rock and roll? Can you do this? Can you do that? Can you mix it up? You, you know, we, do, we know you like, you love your gospel thing, but uh, we can't hire you any longer as a gospel, just a straight out gospel group. Can you mix it up? So that was, that was a major problem because we were gospel dedicated. And our older brother, George, who just passed away, he says, no, I won't do that. Well, we kicked it around for a couple of weeks and we decided, well, you know, we, we had developed a little bit of a lifestyle and now we can't pay our rent because we're, <laughs> we're not getting work. So what are we gonna do? So, well, why don't we just do this, do this thing? We'll mix it up, we'll do, we'll mix it up. Maybe we'll get famous, maybe we'll make a lot of money, we'll get well known and then we'll come back and we'll do our gospel music. So we went off. We were on a mission. That was our mission: was to go off and do whatever, whatever it took, and then eventually we would get back to do our gospel. Well, it took us, took us around the world, and and in a short period of time, the the the, the demand for rock and roll, blues, R and pop, whatever was was, was more, more demanding than the gospel thing. So eventually we ended up being a full-pledged rock and roll band. And I had vowed I had told my brothers, I'll never fly on an airplane. <laughs> I will not do that. When it comes to that point, I'm out of here. But before I realized it, we had had several flights and I was, I was all okay with that. <laughs> and our brother, George, who said he wouldn't do that, he, he didn't want to, but we says, you're gonna do this whether you want to or not. He said, okay. So we ended up being a full-pleasure rock and roll band and traveled all over the world for mm. 21 years and a half doing that. That's
2: incredible.
4: We never got back to our gospel thing. Like when we did come off the road, my two younger brothers, they they weren't ready to do the gospel thing again, so they wanted some time off, and we just never got back to it. So, two older brothers have passed away now, and we still haven't gotten back to our gospel thing. I, I'm, my uh, my brother George and I, we were in several different gospel group, local gospel groups in the city, mm-hmm. while waiting for our two younger brothers to come around, but it didn't happen yet. So. That's how we ended up being a rock and roll band.
2: That's incredible.
0: So once again, that was Willie Chambers on the Music History Project, talking about the formation of the Chambers brothers and how they really didn't fit into one genre. Next up, we're going to be hearing from the Third Chamber's brother, Joe, and he's going to be talking about his exposure to music when he was younger and his brother, George, who unfortunately we did not get a chance to interview, but he is still represented well within this podcast. So here's Joe. I
2: wonder if you could talk a little bit about your exposure to music.
0: Well,
5: uh, as a child back in Mississippi, uh, our mom and dad introduced us to music. Mom, particularly, introduced us to harmonizing, Uh, and that's something she used to do as a young person back in in Mississippi. She went around to churches and various places teaching people about music and how to harmonize. So she instilled (laughs) that in our hearts, and she made sure that we understood how to harmonize.
2: Fantastic. Yeah. What are some of the early memories you have of of music?
5: Well, <laughs> singing with my brothers. All, all my first uh, uh, appearance on stage. I was six years old, singing a song called "I'll Fly Away," mm-hmm. and uh, I love music. That we live for music. Music lives through us, and we live for it.
2: And I think you praise funny.
5: God. I was, I, it's
2: funny, you, I was about to say that same thing. You you have used that to praise God and to have other people praise God.
5: Well, that, that, that's what he said when he gave out the talents. He said, take this and use it and share it. That, that, that we're proud to do that, you know? That's fantastic. It's a great thing. Yeah. <laughs> Time has come today, <laughs> <laughs> you know? I, I waited a long time for moments like this. <laughs>
2: yeah, me too.
5: <laughs> <laughs>
2: so I was wondering, did what were some of the songs that you guys played in the early days that were meaningful to you? Uh,
5: well, you know, we always chose songs that have meaning, and I I, I can't, can't think of any song that we ever did. They didn't carry a message that was helpful to people as well as ourselves. Just something we uh, seem to have had some insight into, uh, take messages to people.
2: Absolutely. You know, I never got to meet George. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about your brother.
5: The greatest brother I ever had. Uh, My big brother, I miss him so much. Uh, He gave me a lot in life. Uh, He gave me insights to things that were to come in my life. Like he gave me my first of everything. Mm -hmm. Until one day I went to him and I asked, asked him the question. He said, Joseph, you're going to have to go and find the answers for yourself now. I don't have the answers. You go find the answers for yourself. So I'd rather not try to give you another, an answer. As I might tell you wrong. You find the answer for yourself. And I went about my way to do that. <laughs>
2: yeah, you sure did. Yeah. Yeah. What was the first instrument that you played? Guitar. Is that right? Yes. Was that in the family or? did you have to go well
5: back? uh we had brother older brother major who played guitar a little guitar my father played a little guitar i don't mean a little guitar but <laughs> yeah and uh, and then then uh, willie came along and he he was playing the guitar i didn't start playing until uh, till we formed the group uh later in life uh, it was something I had to do because I had to play in the band. I had to learn, Lester had to learn to play the harmonica because he had to play in the band. We brought George, the Gut Bucket bass, because he had to play in the band and we knew the bass fitted his character perfectly. And uh, so we, we, Lester and I saw that bass, the Gut Bucket, and we said to the person who brought it in, we said, we got a brother that this is gonna work really well for. And he gave us the bait, the gut bucket. We took it home, introduced it to George, and he played it immediately. And uh, hey, got it good. <laughs>
2: well, like you, I am just enthralled listening to this guy. I love Joe. Joe Chambers, uh, what an amazing guy. He's he's not small, he's a he's a large guy, he's very tall. Um and a teddy bear absolutely a wonderful gentleman and a great guy to be around and i'll tell you um i first met him the day before this interview uh took place in tarzana a uh, willie his brother was having his birthday party at a place called the maui sugar mill saloon and uh what a great group of people came out for that show and uh willie started they they played some gospel music um, at the beginning, he said, this is where we started. So this is how this show is going to start. And then they got into some blues and some uh, some folk music before they, uh, they played a couple of their rock songs. And I'll tell you, the second Joe started singing, I turned to my wife, Suzanne, and I said, oh, my God, that's the voice. <laughs> I mean, that, I almost got chills. That's the voice. I've heard that voice my whole life. And there's something absolutely unique and powerful and incredible about that voice. And just his delivery and his sincerity uh, comes across in every word. And uh, to boot, he was jumping around stage, hitting the cowbell. And of course, you know, uh, way before I Need More Cowbell, the Chambers brothers were, uh, Lester and Joe in particular, were flailing all around stage playing the cowbell to great success. Um, so what a great and wonderful experience that was. Uh, so as we continue, I, uh, we're lucky enough to hear a little bit more from from Willie, and uh, he's gonna talk a little bit more about how their career developed and some of the uh, uh, recordings and some of the uh, important performances that they have uh, been a part of during their career. So here's Willie Chambers. You played sort of a role in folk music there for a while, thanks to Pete Seeger, right, and going to the- Yeah, uh, Pete
4: Seeger, yeah, took us to uh, Newport Folk Festival. We, uh, we went there, and we were disobedient. We broke rules. Uh, we, we went to Newport to do just workshops. We weren't on the main stage, but it just so happened that one of the artists, older blues singer, got ill, and he couldn't do his performance, so they came to us and asked us if we would fill in and do a main stage, so we were delighted. Of course, we, now we're going to be on a, we're going to be on a big stage and, and from the majority of the people instead sort of just doing small workshops. And, but we were doing gospel at Newport. Hmm. and we were on stage and before, before we went on, uh, Mr. Weens, who was uh, head of uh, Newport Folks Festival, came to us and says, this is folk music You that you won't do, time has come today, because this is folk music and that song won't work here. So we were on the stage and we we looked out and we saw all those people, all those beautiful people. And like they had heard Michael Roll the voter show all weekend. And actually everybody's pretty bored with, because folk music doesn't get any higher than that. You know, the energy level doesn't, raised very high. And we kind of looked at each other and are we gonna pass up this opportunity? <laughs> and we says, no, we're not. Time has come today. And we <laughs> played we played the time has come today. It was it was kind of a disaster because it broke up all the workshops. Everybody come running from the workshops. They broke down all the makeshift walls that they put up for the workshops they just flattened that and now it's a full pledge rock and roll concert and people in charge of the festival was not very pleased they weren't pleased with that at all and uh, after we came off stage Mr. Weins came out on stage and he said were the I don't know if you know it or not but that was not Folk music, and these guys will never play the Newport Folk Festival again. We played it three years back to back, popular demand. <laughs> well, yeah, there was an opportunity there that we just we couldn't we couldn't pass it up because we could see that people needed something with some energy to bring some life back. To the crowd was like. Everybody's there and participating and being respectful to the cause, but they needed needed a lift. And we saw the opportunity So, well, maybe we'll never get to play here again, but we're gonna do this. And we
2: did. That's very cool. You mentioned Time Has Come Today. You and Joe wrote that, right?
4: Yeah, that was in our, in our band house one evening, I was, I was downstairs in the dining room area and I had an acoustic guitar I was playing. And that music just stuck in my head. I kept playing it over and over and over. I didn't have lyrics. And Joe was upstairs in his room writing and he heard me playing downstairs and he came to the top of the stairs. He said, what's that you're playing? I says, I don't know. It just came to me now and I'm just, playing it. He says, do you have lyrics for it? I said, no, it just came to me right now. He says, well, I was up in my room writing and while I'm writing the music seemed to fit with what I'm writing. I said, well, let's go down in the studio and see what's going on. So we went down, uh, we had a basement there. So we had a rehearsal studio there. We went down in the basement and the lyrics that he was writing and the music that I was playing seemed to be a couple. And that's where time has come today got started right there. But then we only had about a two and a half, three minute song like there. But then one night I was laying in my bedroom and this a thought came to me, I says, Well, we should we should turn this into a psychedelic we should make this song our contribution to psychedelic music, but we need to extend it. But then I thought, uh, some many many years ago, when I was a kid, there was uh, there was a song I heard, uh, there was a record I heard on the radio. There was something about Depp coming to get some guy, and he was screaming and hollering, and there was a lot of screaming, and just scared the living daylights out of me. And I remember that I thought that would be, that would work well in this song. You know, all the screaming and all the hollering guys. So I told my brothers, I I went and knocked on air, I said, I got an idea. So we went down in the studio. We was all down there all night, making that a longer song. And my brother George, he thought it was silly and stupid. He says, (laughs) he didn't like it at all because all of the carrying on, all the screaming and stuff like that. And like we uh, we worked that out, and we got that established that we was going to do it this way, and we started performing it in that manner, and it 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 scared people. I I remember seeing people grabbing their heads and running straight out the door. It was just too much going on. <laughs> and our uh, brother George, he was he says are we gonna, we're not gonna play that song tonight, are we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're gonna sing it every night, we're gonna play it every night. <laughs> but there's something about that song, like I can't remember the number of times that we performed that song, but it's never been the same twice. It's never, ever been the same twice. It's, it's, it's something different every time and right to this day, I, I put that record on right now and I listen to it and I hear something that I, I didn't hear before. Well, when we recorded that, uh, that song, we were breaking rules again because uh, when we signed with Columbia Records, uh, Clive Davis, he, he said we couldn't record that because Columbia Records didn't do that kind of stuff on that label. And we thought, well, we may as well just pack up and go home, because we we had a few, we didn't have any original stuff really, not to that extent, to do a whole album. But we had some cover tunes and some rearrangements on some cover tunes. Mm. But we we were counting on the time has come today. We had saw the reaction, we had sang it like, as far as Detroit, we'd gone as far as Detroit, San Francisco and the Bay Area. And the response to that song, we, we kind of knew we had something that was gonna be substantial. And then he turns around and tells us we can't record it. And our, producer, our uh, producer, who was a staff producer at Columbia Records, he had followed us around for more than two years, and his biggest dream was to someday record The Time Has Come Today. But when Clive said we can't record it, that was, uh, that, was, uh, that was a low blow. And our producer called us a couple of days later, he says, I don't care what he says, we're gonna record that song. When we get our, when we get our studio date, we're just gonna sneak in the studio, come, you guys come 45 minutes earlier. We're gonna set up the amps, we're gonna record it live, We can't play back, we can't splice, we can't overdub, we can't fix nothing, whatever we get, that's what we're gonna have to live with. It was all done in one take. Uh, At the same time we were recording, uh, he was doing the effects, and we snuck in and re-recorded it. Well, Mr. Davis didn't know, didn't find out about it until the album was, mixed pressed and released <laughs> he did fire he fired our producer and this guy had a wife and two kids mm. yeah
2: was that dave uh, uh, david uh, rubinson yeah
4: i just spoke to him a few days ago is that right yeah well we we tried to connect with the he called i missed his call i called him he missed my call but uh it was exciting to to get back in touch with him again, Cause I, I I think he did an amazing job producing that song, and he didn't he didn't have much space to work. He everything was done at one 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 pass. We didn't hear it we didn't hear it back until it was the album was released. When the album was released, and we heard it for the first time. And uh, we thought it could have even been greater. But whatever we got on that pass, it seemed to work. That song just don't go away. And we we were kind of concentrating on, we never wanted to have a number one record. We never wanted to have, we didn't want to be in that number one category. Somewhere in 10, top 10 and above, you know, top 20. It's a comfortable place, because the number one is only one way to go. You gotta come back with another number one, and you gotta come back with another number one, and that's quite a challenge, because if you don't come back, if you got a number one record and you you release, your next release doesn't go number one, the company starts looking for other people and you do another release and it doesn't go to number one, you're out of there, just like that. So we never wanted to be faced with that. So we kind of hoped to be somewhere and stay in the top 10, top 20, and that was comfortable. Well, we were never looking to be a big time rock and roll band we just, just wanted to have fun, just do what we were doing and enjoy it and have fun. But then we met this lady right here. There was a Doors concert at the Hollywood Bowl. Chambers, Doors, Chambers Brothers Stepping book mm-hmm. And her daughter was probably 15, 16 years old at the time. She had gone to that concert with the uh, one of the writers from the Los Angeles Times. And uh, her family was very well known in the music industry because uh, her mother, Helen Noga, discovered Johnny Mathis. And she was a publicist, she had a publishing company. And she, uh, her daughter came back and was telling her about us, and we were headquarters in New York at the time. And we'd gone to New York because a business day there is a real business day. You get, you get business done in New York. And here in LA, you might get one or two things done in one day, but back East, everything's like that. So we moved our business to New York. She came to New York, Beverly came to New York, she wanted to be our publicist. We didn't even know what that word meant. <laughs> we had never had a publicist. But then she came, and by the by the time she showed up, we had uh, we had encountered all of the bad treatment you could ever get anywhere, and we weren't happy guys. We well, we weren't. We were happy among ourselves, but when other people came around, we put on. <laughs> We put on the, the mean look. <laughs> we said, who is this little old woman? What does she want now? What is she up to? And, but she was tough and she became our publicist. Now we get magazines, we get interviews, we get all of this good stuff going on.
2: We should say her full name for the camera.
4: Beverly Noga, mm. daughter of Helen Noga who discovered Johnny Mathis.
2: Fantastic.
4: Then we started getting the uh, Ed Sullivan shows, Mike Douglas, Dick Cavett, hmm. Johnny Carson, Smothers Brothers, Delores.
2: Hmm.
4: Matter of fact, we received our gold album on uh, the Smothers Brothers Smothers Brothers wow. t- television show. We were presented our gold album and guess who showed up? Clive Davis <laughs> in the dresser in the green room. And Clive comes walking in and he's all got this big smile and said, hey hey fellas look like we got one. <laughs> yeah you are one. <laughs> yeah we we got one. So.
2: Anything um, memorable about the uh, Ed Sullivan appearance?
4: Ed Sullivan? Do I remember?
2: Anything in particular?
4: That he was just a great guy. I remember his greatness. He was really a great guy. Matter of fact, uh, our office was next door to the Ed Sullivan building in New York. Hmm. And we saw him pretty much on a daily basis. That, that was before we were on the show though. And like, he was just really a great, straight up, down to earth, great guy.
2: Okay, Mike and Ashley are totally teasing me about saying, time. But (laughs) now I have the great opportunity to say, how cool was it to hear Willie talking about how that song came together. That was super, super awesome. Very, very cool stuff. And, uh, you know, again, growing up listening to that song, uh, it being kind of a, a part of our lives. It's really neat to uh, to get to know the people behind it and realize this amazing career of so many other facets that uh, many people may not know about, which is kind of exciting about this particular episode to me, shedding a little light on some very important stuff. Um, and interestingly enough, they were uh, talking about earlier the uh, sort of the folk festivals that uh, Pete Seeger helped them uh, get engagements with and and toured around and sort of with the folkies. Um, very interesting time because now, of course, um, Americana music uh, and roots music, as it's called, uh, sort of blend African-Americans and, and, and white Uh, musicians together, but back in the day uh, that the Chambers brothers were doing it, that was uh, somewhat rare. Uh, It either happened on a different day of the festival, or it didn't happen at all, so um, the Chambers brothers really broke a lot of ground with that, and I wanted to point out to those who want to seek uh, out to hear some of their music, there's a fantastic recording of Gospel at Newport which has this uh, incredible version of Just a Closer Walk with Thee that the Chambers brothers do that is definitely worth listening to. So that is, that's my uh, shout out for those that uh, ask for a little bit of music that goes along with these stories. Uh, that would definitely be a great place to start.
1: Such great stories that Willie tells, and you can really see the transition that they go through uh, and trying to Bounce between all these different genres. Uh, And towards the end there, he mentioned uh, a woman's name, Beverly. Uh, So if we're wondering who that is, that is Beverly Noga. Uh, She is played a crucial part with the Chambers brothers, um, being their publicist and really uh, paving the way for them and, and pushing them up onto the front of that stage. Uh, and you kind of heard a little bit about Willie and uh, talking about her and just how important she was to them. But we also have her take on this whole story, uh, which is a great one, and uh, how she discovered them and how she just knew she had to, to be their publisher. So uh,
6: here is um, uh, Beverly Noga. I started a publicity office and I had some of the biggest acts in the business most of them I got from ground up. They didn't have a name, they didn't have anything. And I had 20 wonderful people working for me. And I can't tell you how many outside writers, freelance writers. And we made, we made it happen each time. I had the cream and the Bee Gees and I had them all from Slimy Jump Street except the Bee Gees. I was threatened by Stigwood. He said I could have the cream if I took the Bee Gees. <laughs> I thought, well, okay, but I want the green. And uh, I had Three Dog Night, The Turtles. We started Sonny and Cher. Wow. My daughter had gone to a concert with uh, the critic of the Times newspaper because Chuck Champlin, who was the editor at that time, in a very close dear friend of the family he said Beverly I'm not going to another concert I'm not gonna crawl on another floor when people start throwing bottles at each other I'm through I got a young kid he's a, <coughs> he's a friend of uh, he's the son of a friend of my family's and I want you to take care of him and keep him under your wing because he's gonna be my music critic and I said well okay Chuck I'm gonna miss you but okay well I ended up with Pete who was a young boy who was very adventurous and I trusted him with my soul. He took my daughter to see a group called the Chambers Brothers and they were playing at the Hollywood Bowl and they were uh, on with the doors. Well they came home tearing the house apart waking everybody in the house up from our help to my folks to me screaming don't you dare go to the paper tomorrow and not tell the truth, Pete, so help me, don't you do that. Because she said, I'll tell everybody. And I'm saying, what What? Tell, what happened? She said, well, there was a group and they beat those doors to blazes, Mom. She said, the doors were nothing when they got through. You got to go get them. And to this day, she said, I said, go get them, I didn't say forever. <laughs> Because I still work with them. <laughs> I still uh, am associated and work with them very closely. They're my dearest friends. And uh, we have a great business relationship together, and I, I appreciate it.
0: That's and fantastic. So
6: that's so. where I came to to this point. Mm. But uh, I had a choice. I either could go just with Stigwood to London or go with them, and I closed my doors. I did go to New York and got them. And that wasn't easy either. I got to New York looking at six foot something guys who looked at me like, what the blazes are you doing here? Who are you? And I mean, to walk into a room with, with that. Just brought the challenge out of me. <laughs> Made me bloody <laughs> So their manager said, are you going to stay and go to the concert tonight? I said, well, I didn't come here not to. So I went to the concert that night. And they just tore the place apart. I sat there and I said, hmm, now I know what she said and what she meant. And then Willie sang the Midnight Hour. And I said, oh, blank. I'm not leaving here without taking them back with me. That's it. That's it. And so I did. And we've been together ever since. And Stigwood didn't talk to me for years. for years. He said, do you realize you could have worked in my film department, and my music department, and I could probably have. He gave me carte blanche. I could do anything I wanted, be where I wanted. And he treated me royally, and he felt like I stabbed him in the back, which was not true. I just did what I wanted to do.
2: You know, um, one of the sort of the harder parts of my job is documenting the hard times and the sad parts of, of the music industry as well as the happy times. And I know that it must have been difficult for you traveling in the south with the uh, the Chamber Chambers brothers. I wonder if you could tell a little bit about what that was like.
6: It wasn't difficult. It was devastating. <laughs> Are you kidding? No. Yeah. Uh, I went to Mississippi. Hmm. Well, that was a trip and a story all by itself. Uh, I was told. I was in Los Angeles, and I met them in Jackson, Jacksonville. <clears throat> they were coming from New York. I was told, don't go near them. I'm thinking to myself, what do you mean, don't go near them? I didn't know anything about things like this, you know. My mother never, well, we had a club that was interracial, and uh, I grew up that way. I grew up with people that were from all walks of life, and we never talked about it. and. I said, what do you mean I can't go talk to them? They said, no, you're going to have to drive out to Fayette in two different limos. Well, I had their secretary with me from New York. So she and I had to get into one limo while they got into another one to drive 80 miles to Fayette with me having to sit on the floor. Now that was I thought the most stupid thing in the whole world, why do I have to sit on the floor above all? I mean, they're not in the car with us, but I kept sticking my head up to see the sights, which are beautiful, you know, and being told to stick my head back down. So we got there, and we got to the hotel, and I still couldn't talk to them, I was told to stay in my room. And I thought, well, what am I doing here? Why am I here? I mean, I can't talk to them, I can't go near anybody, and uh, I'm, so we're doing a concert here? Because it was their concert. So, um, the secretary and I went down to the restaurant to eat the night. And I looked up and I saw in the doorway a man standing there and he looked like he was right out of the film. I said, don't look now, but there's somebody at the doorway and I said, Gloria, I think it's a sheriff. And she said, oh my gosh, she said, don't you say anything. Well, he did come over to the table and he looked at me and he looked at her and he said, uh, he he sat down, turned his chair around, sat down. I said, excuse me, sir, I didn't invite you to my table. He looked at me and he said, do you know who I am? I said, no, I said, I don't know who you are. That's why I'm asking you not to sit at my table. He said, well, I'm the sheriff. I said, oh. I said, well, I want to tell you something. He said, well, you're not going to tell me anything. You're going to eat, and you're going to go back to your room. I said, sir, I didn't bring a passport. And I will eat, and I'll go to my room when I'm ready. And furthermore, I said, I could pick up this phone tonight, call my mother, who has a direct line to Nixon's office, and I don't think you're going to want to deal with me on that. He got up from his chair and he looked at me and he walked out. And Gloria almost, she almost went unconscious. But anyway, we went back to the room just because I didn't want to be difficult and cause anybody any more trouble. And went to the concert the next day. I didn't look at things like that. I didn't, and I still don't. You know, sometimes I know that somebody's going to be looking at me or with whomever I'm with. And I don't miss a trick, I see it. But quite frankly, as Scarlett O'Hara said once, I don't quite give a damn.
2: (laughs) Oh my gosh, I just absolutely love Beverly. Thank you, Beverly, if you're listening. We just greatly appreciate all that you do for music and for the Chambers Brothers and their legacy. It's an amazing, amazing commitment that you have um, put towards uh, just their legacy, and and we greatly appreciate that. If it wasn't for her, I don't think we would have had the uh, interview with Joe, so another shout-out to her for that as well. Um, and it's always great to, to listen to to those stories. And as uh, Ashley was reminding me, uh, she just has an incredible history. You know, her mom was the publicist and, and first manager of Johnny Mathis and really put him on the map, so she had some... Uh, great uh examples to follow and she certainly did that uh so um so i just really wanted to say thank you to her for that Uh, another special guest before we get back into a few more segments of the chambers brothers uh we have a wonderful segment here it's a a little short but i think it's still worthy of playing it's from Snooky flowers so for those of you who may remember that great name um, he was the band director for a lot of great acts, uh, beginning with a, a girl singer that you may have heard of named Janis Joplin. Um, great story about that. And um, in fact, um, you'll have to check it out on our website if you'd like to hear that full story. Snooky's uh, full interview is actually posted on uh, the NAM website. Uh, so I'm teasing that up for you guys to go on your own, to go listen to that. It is definitely worth your time. Uh, but today he's stopping by this podcast to uh, tell us about his his views on the Chambers brothers. This is another interview that was made possible by Fat Dog. And uh, just another shout out to him. Uh, we, you know, we lost Snooky earlier this year in 2020. And... Um, after his passing, it was amazing how many of his friends and fans uh, emailed us saying that they just had not heard an interview with him, certainly nothing recently. And, um, you know, there's some great footage that one of those um, fans told me about that um uh, is available on YouTube. It's from Woodstock where he's dancing on stage with Janice. So uh, another thing <laughs> worth checking out and the wonderful way to remember this guy with a very big heart. So here's Snooky.
7: When we was on the road with Janice, were not no black bands out there. They had one boy sing with a band called PG&E. Mm-hmm. He was a black dude, he was the lead singer. Charlie Allen. But the band was the Chambers brothers. Uh, Now they can say hippie and all that other bullshit. But man, we look forward. When they was gonna open the show for us, it was cool. Cause when them boys hit the stage, now when the Isley brothers used to play, people didn't come hear the Isley sing. They come see what the Isley's was gonna wear. When the Chambers brothers hit the stage, they bested the Isley's by about three. Them was the cleanest dudes on the planet. The road manager was even sharp. I mean, we were saying, damn, where did these boys get the dressing from? They was dressing, sh- I mean, they was the sharpest dressers on the planet, man. And they sung good, and they looked good. We used to just marvel at listening to them play. And we could play that harp. He could chew that harp up. Still, when they sing, people get ready. That still knocks me out, man. Mm -hmm. There's a train coming, brother. And you better be ready. Mm -hmm. And them boys could sing and still can. Mm -hmm. I love the way they sang and love the way they looked. Lester's still my brother. Mm -hmm. You know, we still hang together. When the shows used to be over and we used to finish playing, we the mother band would leave. We'd be there till that Monday morning. We'd be hanging out. We'd be by the pool and stuff. We'd be hanging, brother.
0: So once again that was Snooky Flowers. And like Dan said earlier, his full interview is available on the NAM website. That is NAM N A M M dot org slash library. You'll see a button that says advanced search. You can search through all of our tags. And one of our tags is full interviews. Um, or you can just search Snooky's name, Snooky Flowers, and it'll pop up for you. Um, definitely worth the watch. I highly recommend it if uh, that little segment interests you at all. Uh, next up, we are going to hear again from Willie Chambers. He is going to talk a little bit more about Time Has Come Today and a little bit more about the career of the Chambers brothers.
2: So, uh, back to uh, Time Has Come. I'm kind of wondering what. Guitar, were you playing? Do you happen to remember?
4: I still have that guitar. Uh, that guitar, that song was recorded. Uh, the guitar used on that recording was—it has no name. There was a uh, a uh, a pawn shop somewhere in Vermont, down by the college. This was back in the fifties. I saw that guitar. For years, hanging there in that in that shop in that pun shop. So one day I went in there to check it out. So I went in and I asked the guy, but I, I inquired about the guitar, and the guy said, "You want to buy it?" I says, "Well, I probably can't afford it because it had uh, it has gold flaked uh, tuna pe- tuna pegs, and, and a lot of chrome on it and stuff like that, and it has no name." He says, "Why don't you buy it?" He "Guitar's been here for years. Nobody wants to buy it because it doesn't have a name." So he sold it to me for forty-five bucks, and I didn't even have the forty-five bucks because <laughs> I went and borrowed forty-five dollars. I borrowed forty-five dollars from my brother George, and went and bought the guitar. I still have that guitar. And that's the guitar I used for all of our recordings. Wow. It's at home right now with a broken neck. Mm. I went to Hawaii to do a show there with Eric the, uh, Burden and I think it was Taj Mahal. And I didn't have the proper carrying case for it, but I brought it, I, brought, I brought it along as an extra guitar just in case, so a spare guitar. Well, uh, the airlines allowed me to check it, I mean to carry it, I'll, I'll put it in the old head going there, but on the way back, they wouldn't allow me to do that. So they made me check it. And not being in the proper kind of carrying case, it got crushed and the neck got broken. Mm. Well, the airlines didn't want to be responsible for that. And they just, I can't argue with people. Uh, I got my guitar and I opened the case and it's broken. I went straight to the claims department and the guy, he pretty much accused me of trying to scam him to get my guitar fixed. So I just looked at him, took my guitar and never said another word, went home with it. uh, I don't have the patience to argue with somebody when I know I'm right.
2: (laughs) So is it Lester playing the cowbell?
4: Lester, Lester revolutionized the cowbell. And he doesn't get any credit for it. You know, I think there should be a category a category established in the industry that provides some kind of something for people who make huge contributions to a song. It might be a guitar riff. It might be a cowbell. It might be something that one musician did that made that song happen. And these people, they don't get any respect for that. I remember my. I remember some really mad times from my brother. He just he just felt like put out because he 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 made a huge contribution to that song with that cowbell, and he doesn't get any respect for. it And I can I can understand is. People being a little unhappy like cause there's tons of musicians that made contributions like that, and they they don't get recognized they don 't get any recognition for that. I think something should be in the future something should be done about that
3: because
4: mm. guys end up being junkies, alcoholics because they're heartbroken and they 're going to hear that song on the radio and the television and commercials and all of that, and they don't get any they don't get any respect. Mm. Uh, I that cowbell thing because it was a clock. It was a clock. It was about time, and uh, I thought we needed to have something that indicated a clock. Well, there was you couldn't find a cowbell. You know, you couldn't go to a music store hardly ever and find a good cowbell. You know, like uh, like some of the uh, 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 j- uh, j- jazz groups use cowbells. But not to any extent. Mm. And our first cowbell was the bumper guard off off of an old Plymouth car. <laughs> that was the first cowbell. But somebody stole that out of our dressing room. <laughs> but now you can you can find a cowbell. Cowbell has been is 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 a is, is been revolutionized, and I thank my brother for that. He totally made the cowbell a popular instrument.
2: Well said, that's very true. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. Very cool. Yeah, amazing career you guys have had. And, and you did a lot of session work, and I was trying to find some information about that. Can you talk talk to us a little bit about that?
4: Session work?
2: Yeah, as a studio musician. You and Joe, I think, did some of that.
4: Uh, we did some background vocals with, uh, I can't even think of the guy's name. He it, it never went anywhere big, but mm. we did some studio work. I played guitar, was a studio studio uh, musician for a producer by the name of Bumps Blackwell, who did uh, all of Sam Cooke's. He was a pro- producer for Sam Cooke. When Sam Cooke was going pop, Bumps Blackwell, and that's where, uh, what's his name, learned his skills. Uh, I can't think of his name now, but uh, anyway. I can't think of anything that we did, studio backup or uh, session work that turned out to be anything substantial. But we did some of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, background, vocals, and that's how we started out as a gospel background group we we weren't lead singers we were background vocals and we had lead singers and that's why we had six people in our group cause generally lead singers didn't sing in the background some of them could not sing background vocals they could only do lead but uh, the the couple of guys we had uh, as our lead singers, just when we were getting into the coffee houses and folk places, folk, folk music, they kind of walked out on us. Because uh, one guy, the five blind boys from Mississippi came to through Los Angeles and they took one of our lead singers who did most of the lead singing in our concerts. They took him to be a part of their group, and the our other lead singer who didn't get to sing very much, because he was just kind of mostly like standing there most of the time. Because this, uh, we had recorded a, a record called "I Trust in God," and it was getting airplay. And when we, when 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 all the major groups came into the city, it was the Chambers Brothers and the Mighty Mighty Clouds of Joy. Mm did uh, we open all of the the concerts we were the opening acts for all the major groups that came in and when uh, when the blind boys took uh, uh, one lead singer the other lead we were we were in a rehearsal shortly after that and the the lead singer says I guess y'all want me you guys want me to sing now huh and we kind of said, "Well, yeah." He says, "Well, I quit," and he walked out on us. And we kind of looked at each other and we said, "The heck with it! We're going to learn how to sing our lead out, sing lead songs ourselves, and we don't have to depend on." This will never happen to us again because we will be totally self-contained. We were when we when we started out our group. My, I started playing the guitar when I was four years old. It's a funny thing. I never had to learn how to play it. I could already play it the very first time I touched the guitar. I could play it. I thought that's what you do. <laughs> I thought that's what you do. You you play songs and and you sing songs. And I thought that's what you do. And I could do it already. But my my. Other brothers, they weren't, they weren't musicians at all. They they taught themselves how to play so we could be self-contained, we could play our own music. And they taught themselves how to play. My brother George started out on the bass with a watchtub tub bass. Or oh, did he get blisters? And then he later on, he got a Danny electric bass. That you had the tune for every chord change, <laughs> uh, and my brothers—they taught themselves pretty much. They learned how to play right on stage in front of God and everybody.
2: Mm. Yeah. And then you found the drummer.
4: Oh yeah. We should
2: talk about. We had
4: you. had uh, we had had other drummers. They were pretty. They were good, but. Bob Dylan we were friends with Bob Dylan and Bob Dylan was we were in New York and Bob Dylan was there recording Highways is it Highway 66 Revisited or something like that
2: 61. Highway
4: 61 Revisited and we and he there he, he took us in the studio because he wanted us to do some background vocals on some of his songs <coughs> and we were there with him doing that and he said, uh, at, at, after the session tonight, we're gonna go to a discotheque. Never heard that phrase before. What's a discotheque? Well, they played records, and they have a live band, and then they played records, and people danced. So we're gonna go there. It was The club was, un, Club Undine in New York it was one of the first discotheques in America. So after the session, we went there, and the place was crowded, jam-packed, and everybody was having a great time. And the band was uh, the band was, that was playing there, a local band called The Losers, and they were playing when we came. And at the end of their set, some guy came out on the stage and announced that there was a visiting group from California in, in the house and they're gonna get up later on and do some some numbers. We had no idea they were talking about us. So we, just, we didn't pay too much attention to that. And we're sitting there and then they played a record and then the band came on and did another set. And the guy came out and says, now ladies and gentlemen, the surprise of the night we have the Chambers brothers. We said, what, we didn't even have a, a drum. We didn't we didn't travel with a drum at that time. We didn't have a drama. And we're kind of looking at the crowd, is going You yeah. know, so what are we gonna do? So I says, Well, why don't we just do the same songs we do? We'll just speed them up to a dance tempo, and we'll see if we can get that drama from that other band to sit in with us. So we approached him and asked him if he would sit in with us and he said, Sure. And we just did the same songs we do in the coffee houses, but we just gave it a a little brighter tempo, and the people could dance. So we did a set there. Uh, when we got on, when that drummer came on that stage, and he sat down at the drums, and we did our first song. Like four bars into that song, we, there was something about his drumming that. He was the fifth brother, he had to be the fifth brother. <laughs> and We kind of looked at each other and said, this is our guy. And so at the end of the night we, uh, we asked him if he would uh, be interested in, because we, we were in the process of, process of signing with Columbia Records at the time. And we asked him if he would be interested in being our drummer for life. And he says, sure. So I said, okay, when, when the time comes, we'll send you a ticket, we have a band house, you have a room, you can you move in. So when we signed with Columbia Records, we flew him out and he came. Brian Keenan,
2: <laughs>
4: the best drummer. Mm. Man, this guy, he was just
2: awesome. He was perfect for your guys' group. <sighs> I mean, absolutely perfect.
4: Perfect. It made us an made us an integrated group. We didn't care about that. He didn't care. We didn't care either. But the industry, you know, like back in those days, it was kind of like we suffered a lot for being an integrated group. Really, and we gained a lot for being an integrated group. Really? The whole time, we didn't give a flying what you, what you want to say one way or the other. <laughs> we were just doing what we loved and, and enjoying what, what we, did. And we did. We weren't thinking about, that was ne- never planned to be, never planned to turn out to be that way, but that's how it turned out, and we were content with that, and we loved him, and he loved us. We, he was our fifth brother, and we loved each other. Totally mm. and he was just the best he should have been on the cover of every drum magazine, but being in an, in, a, in a, being in an integrated group he he never got never got his dues because where mm. he was he was in in the wrong group <laughs> mm. in the right group at the wrong time or something I don't know but uh, he, yeah,
2: fantastic drummer. I mean, it's it's really cool to listen to him because it, it definitely
4: he suffered. He suffered a lot for being in a black group, integrated group.
2: Hmm.
4: He, uh, I remember one time, like with Columbia Records, we was always trying to come up with something different, and, and like we were we were releasing a forty-five, and forty-fives used to just come in just a brown sleeve, just a little brown. There was no picture, there was nothing. So we we brought it to the company that maybe, why not put the group's picture on a 45 sleeve that's never been done before? And they thought, hey, that's great, Hey, that's great. So on our 45 release, there was a picture of the group on the 45 sleeve, but they took him out of the picture. So he was crying in the hotel as uh, so they took him out of the picture. So we, we weren't happy with that at all. So we just marched right down to Columbia Records and said, What, what, what do you do? Why'd you do that? He says, Well, we can't, we got to sell records in the South. You know, they're not gonna, people are not going to buy records in the South. They see four black guys in front of a white guy behind them on the drums. So we took him out of the picture. I said, you you broke his heart. You know, like, tell you what, call the order back. Are you crazy? That's too much money. We don't care how much it costs. We're not gonna, re- We're, if he can't be in the picture, we don't want it released. So we call it back. But they would not put his picture back in the picture, put, wouldn't put him back in the picture, so. Hmm. That's what we went through for being an integrated group. We had no problems with it, but uh, we didn't give, a, we didn't care. Like when we, when we was getting ready to s- <coughs> sign, we, we had been approached by every major label in the in the world: RCA, Capitol, Warner Brothers, Fantasy. Even Motown, everybody wanted to record us, but every, every major label wanted to change us to from rock and roll. They said we didn't belong in rock and roll, and I'm thinking, well, I guess Chuck Berry and Little Richard didn't belong either. So well, that's the first rock and roll I heard was Chuck Berry, Little Richard, people like that. And now we're being told that we were misfits and we don't belong in rock and roll. And we should uh, put our guitars down, get some suits alike, learn some steps, and go play where you're supposed to be. <laughs> and we just said, "The hell with you! We will play wherever we want." And uh, it, it was it was a it was a struggle. It was a a lot of walls were being torn down, but uh, it made it it made it more easy for other groups coming along that might have had interracial groups. Hmm. It kind of opened up some avenues for other people. And we're proud of that. We don't get a lot of respect for things that we did, but we know what we did and we know why, and we're we're content with that, and we have no regrets. Just kind of wish the world had have been. There was a song came out, waiting on the world to change, and we were kind of like trying to be. We were trying to get that to happen. You know, like, we suffer a lot of nonsense because of lack of understandings. Like, the whole world suffers because we we can't wrap our heads around something that's. It doesn't matter what color you are. We did a we did a show at the Apollo. We got booked at the Apollo Theater, and we kind of thought it was a joke because we weren't we weren't a blues, we weren't R and B, we weren't pop, we were none of that. But we get booked at the. Uh, did you have anything to do with that?
6: I was there.
4: <laughs> she was there. We got booked at the Apollo Theater, so like, that's totally black. And we have a white drummer. And like, there was a comedian on the show, Nipsey Russell. And we were on before him. He came on after us. And the first thing out of his mouth was, uh, oh, white drummer. I guess he thought it would be funny. And he says, it's all right to have a white guy in the group, but not in the rhythm section. And nobody laughed, and nobody applauded. So we felt good about that. I didn't think it was. Ner- he didn't need to come out and say stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, our, our drummer. He was nervous at first, but man, he was. He got. He. He was more accepted than us. <laughs> Because of his, his his playing ability, sure when he started playing those drums, it didn't matter to anybody what color he
2: was. The way it should be. Yeah. Well, I absolutely love listening to Willie. That was Willie Chambers, and I love that segment that those guys really embraced that moment on the Apollo stage. What a neat, neat uh, story. So glad to hear that. And speaking of being happy, in with us today, another special guest is our road videographer who was on hand for all three of the interviews with the Chambers brothers, Suzanne Glastap. Thanks for joining us.
8: Thanks for having me. Um, What an honor it was to be present and to meet these three gentlemen. Uh, Just in general, I'd like to say what thoughtful men they are, how funny they all are, how different they all are which I guess, you know, brothers don't necessarily have to be the same, but it was just so fun to be part of their interviews and to get to know them all a little bit. Um, I'd like to mention meeting Willie for the first time. You know, we were set up in kind of a cramped little room waiting for him, and he comes with his manager, and Willie is head to toe in leather. He <laughs> looked so cool. I mean, all of us here today, all together, never looked as cool as he looked, <laughs> and he had on this white captain's hat, and it was all bedazzled with different things, and he just, and I, he just looked so good. It was kind of, it was just, I was in awe of him. Um, Unfortunately, if you listen to his oral history interview, every now and then you hear a little bit of crackling and that's the, you know, that's the rub of wearing leather, but it it was worth (laughs) it. It was so much fun and so fun to meet Beverly. And she was so endearing, obviously a real, real businesswoman. And then she invited us back um, for Willie's birthday party. And that's when we got to interview Joe and see them perform, Mm. which was just, you know, breathtaking. Just, it felt like a bit of history So I just wanted to say how honored I was to be a part of all that.
2: Well said. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Ah, I love those memories. I think we've been very blessed to have that opportunity. And I think as a result, um, sharing it with you guys today on this podcast means an awful lot to us, because I think that uh, hopefully all together we're extending their legacy. So with that, let's listen to the last segment of today's podcast. Returning to Joe Chambers, speaking more about the amazing career of the Chambers Brothers.
5: We just always wanted to sing, and we thought that someday we might be blessed with recording. And uh, we knocked on some doors, and we was turned away from a lot of doors. Uh, we was told a lot because you're black yeah, you know i thought i thought that music was a great opportunity for us because i didn't think there was prejudice in music i found out the truth about that and uh but that was our Im- ambition was to make music and take music to the people that meant something and, and uh, god bless uh uh, uh david rubinson who finally brought us into uh, Columbia. But before Columbia, we was on a, a small label named Vault Records, headed by a guy named Jack Lurick. And uh, that we were doing the show Shindig, and we got kicked off that show because there was two black groups, the Blossoms and the Chambers Brothers on, on this uh, show Shindig. And one of us had to go because there was too many blacks in the, and the stockholders were upset because they had too many blacks. So we was released from the show. We went from uh, Vault Records to ABC Dunhill. No, I'm sorry, I got it backwards. It was ABC Dunhill first. And when, when, the, when the conflict with, with the Shindig happened, uh, ABC Dunhill released us to Vault Records well we recorded a lot of material on Vault Records and uh we still we're still are tr- trying to uh get in touch with those people and, and get our catalog. And uh from, from uh from uh Vault we we went Barbara Dane took us to the Newport Folk Festival and the East Coast. We went we thought we was gonna be going for three days, we got stuck for a very long time, and and, and, uh, we opened this club called Shindig, I mean, I'm I'm sorry, The Cheetah Club uh, in New York. And from there, we look out in the audience, we're on stage, we look out and there's this guy standing standing very slew-footed with a a trench coat like Columbo. And uh, he approached us after the show and he said, I'm from Columbia Records and I'm I'm here to bring you to the label. And there it is. Wow. Yeah. That's fantastic. I
2: yeah. I understand Pete Seeger had something to do with you at the folk festival. Well, is that, Pete right?
5: Pete just a wonderful man. Uh so much talent, and so much heart. Uh he showed me a great tuning for the guitar which I I use on one of our songs, uh New Time New Day. And uh it's a great folklorist, yeah. As a matter of fact, I've been invited to join a group that uh, does Pete Seeger, lead belly and people like that. They want want me to come and sit in with them wow. because their 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 main singer died and they they want they asked me to come and do that with them.
2: Wow, how wonderful. Yeah. That is great material those guys yeah. made, no doubt. Yes. Yeah, so well, I, I don't know if it's that folk festival or another one, but you guys sort of tore the ho- the house down. Do you know mean? Well, we,
5: we had, had a reputation for doing that.
2: <laughs>
5: <laughs> 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 we wasn't we, we weren't trying to. Yeah. It just happened. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I remember once we were on, we were on a stage at the uh, oh god, I can't, What's the name of that place in Philadelphia? The like the Spectrum.
2: The Spectrum. The, what is it? Spectrum.
5: No. Yeah. Well, we were on stage there, and we were we were playing pretty hard, and a promoter came on stage and stopped us. Listen, guys, you got to come down. The ceiling is falling in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, we were doing it. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs>
2: what was your response to uh, the animosity some people had about you playing gospel music in, in bars and in clubs?
5: Well, you know, that was very unfortunate that that happened because those very same people that put us down for it wound up doing it themselves mm. because they saw what we were doing. And, and I don't know if they felt bad about what they had done to to hinder us from uh, from progressing in that uh, because they went there themselves. You know what I mean? But God is good. He kept us, he, he kept us alive in their other venues. And other people were able to come in the same path that we had traveled and do well as well.
2: Yeah. You know, it, it hit extra meaning for me last night because I thought, you know, I looked around at the club And I thought, there's probably people here who've never heard those gospel tunes before, Uh, and you guys brought that to
5: me. That was the whole intent. That was the entire intent, to bring it to people who don't get it. And they got it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Good for you. uh, That's fantastic. You know, I told this to Willie when I met him first, and I just wanted to say it to you. You know, in following your career, I think you guys, it seems like you kind of got pushed down you know, for that and then for you know, racial issues. And you never showed it though. You guys kind well, of always you know, got back
5: up. We, we, we got put down for a lot of things, for being black, for being tight, for being very close brothers, and for tearing the house down. <laughs> to the point that no band wanted to travel or play with us. We went on our European tour we had a, a big staff of people with us, but we couldn't find a group that would do the tour with us. Not one. So we took with us the Joshua Light Show from, from our Bill Grimm's Fillmore West, and Roadrunner Cartoons. That was our opening act. <laughs> and The people in Germany especially, they, they, they loved it. <laughs> yeah, and that's incredible that no group would travel with us. And as, as as we went along in our career, no group, only a few groups, wanted to be on a show with us. You know, and uh, that that shortcoming. You know, uh, God God was good to us; it kept us going. And uh, we we struggled through a lot of lot of. Uh, Ostracization, if I'm saying that correctly. Uh, We were ostracized a lot. We were pushed to the back a lot. You know, and uh, I think a lot of people didn't want us there. You know, but we stayed. We, We never gave up, never lost hope, never lost faith in ourselves or in what we was doing because we knew we was on a path to somewhere, We were all saying, we're trying to go somewhere. Can you tell us how to get there? Uh, where is that place? We're trying to go there. Can you help us on the path to go there? Show us where it is, allow us to go there. there what's happening right now, I think we're about to arrive You know, at the place we've been looking for throughout our whole entire career. I think we may arrive. <laughs>
2: and do you think along the way you've also paved the way for others?
5: Definitely. I, I hear, in, in a lot of people's music, I hear Chambers Brothers influence. Yeah. Yeah, I, think, I think we brought quite a lot to the industry. Yeah. Without, without the people really wanting us to know Mm. That we were in a leading path, and they used us for for what we had mm. and what we gave, and they pushed us to the back.
2: Let's name some of those things: tight harmony, right, spiritual themes, and what else comes to mind that you?
5: Well, you know, they they tried they, they tried to cornhole us with 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 a with a with a, with a, a category. And they asked to what do you call your music? Is it gospel? Is it blues? Is it, It's Chambers Brothers' music. We don't have any one particular genre. We play music, for all genres of music. That's the way we fill in our hearts. That's the way we, we grew up as children learning music. We had the Grand Ole Opry that uh, our father, would. We had a, he had a carbide-charged radio that we would charge the battery all week so we could hear the Grand Ole Opry, which was all country music. And uh, then there was a blues show. We would hear that once a week. And that was our early influences for it, radio, other, er everything else our mom taught us.
0: And that concludes our podcast on the Chambers Brothers. I highly encourage everyone listening to check out the videos that accompany these interviews on the NAM website. It just adds so much more to the whole story. And like Suzanne said earlier, their outfits are just amazing. And you gotta see, you got to see his hat. It, it's, it's, it's a work of art. Um, so thank you again for tuning in. Um this has been the Music History Project, and you will hear from us again in two weeks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino,
1: and Ashley Allison.
0: If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at